The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to begin um, tonight. We're going to be uh, continuing our study in systematic theology, but it's my desire that we have a different feel to what we do here on Wednesday nights uh, than we've had up to this point. I hope not a radically different feel, but as we've been meeting uh, with the deacons, other uh, ministerial leaders in the church and assessing our church, where we're at, where we need to go, just turn on the back page, the absolute back page of your handout. Uh, we came across uh, this chart at the bottom. I'm not talking about the, the triangle at the top, but the chart at the bottom from Aubrey Malfer's uh, book, Values Driven Leadership. And he uh, there is categorizing different kinds of churches. Um, the way the chart works, the, the type of church is identified in the leftmost column. You see that? For example, the classroom church, the soul-winning church, the social conscience church, the experiential church, the family reunion church, the life development church. Now, I'll tell you this, you can't take any single human being or any group of human beings and classify them or categorize them with one label. I mean, people are just too complicated for for that. But that doesn't mean that analysis of churches can't go on, that we can't kind of sense what our strengths or weaknesses are, what what characterizes us. Um, And as I look at this chart, I think that we tend in a certain direction, and I would like to see us tend in a in a more fruitful direction. But I'd like to get your feedback. As you look at those descriptions, what would you say most uh, properly categorizes our church? If you looked at that, now look at look how it works. You've got the, the type of church listed, and then uh, it talks about next the unifying value. For example, the unifying value of the classroom church is information. All right? Uh, for a soul-winning church, obviously, it would be evangelism. The church is gathered around the issue of evangelism. Uh, Social conscience church is uh, concerned about justice, social justice. Uh, Experiential church is concerned about spiritual experience, that you would be having certain spiritual experiences. Uh, The family reunion church, uh, loyalty, relationship, you know, that kind of thing, a sense of belonging. And then the life development church is after character. Um, The role of the pastor would be in the first category. He's a teacher. Uh, Soul winning church, he's an evangelist. Uh, Social conscience, he's a reformer. Uh, experiential church, a performer. Uh, I don't know if that's fair, but uh, at any rate. Uh, family reunion church, he's kind of a chaplain to the family. All right. And then life development church, they say he's a coach urging you on to growth, etc. The role of the people in the classroom church is that they are students. They're here to gain information, etc. Uh, soul winning church, they're supposed to bring people to hear the gospel preached. So they're bringers. Um, social conscience church, you're looking at recruiter, uh, trying to recruit people to the cause. Experiential church, audience, that you are um, there to, uh, to watch whatever show they put on, I guess. Uh, you're a sibling in the family reunion church, and the role of the people in the life transformation church is ministry, that you'd be doing ministries, that you'd have a ministry. The key emphasis on the first is to know, that you would know right doctrine that your, your doctrines would be accurate, that you would think right thoughts about God and be accurate. Uh, the second would be that, you would be that people would be saved, to save, that's the desire, that people would be saved. Uh, the third is that people would be, there would be compassion, caring. Uh, the fourth is to feel, the experiential church is, is a feeling church. Family re- reunion church gives you a sense of belonging. 
finally, it's uh, the, soul, the transformation church. It's what you are to be. That's the key thing there. By the way, when I first got this chart, I looked over. I was learning, whatever. Uh, there was one box that stood out more than any other. And it's in the next column. Now, you can always tell what the author wants or is rooting for when they make something stick out more than any other, right? So what do you notice is different in the typical tool? Is there one box that sticks out more than any other? Which one? Well, I, I overhead projector, but that's similar to all the others. Don't, don't you see? You got, you've got, here you go. Which one would you choose? Okay. Typical tool of the uh, classroom church is the overhead projector. Some might add the whiteboard uh, or the handout, maybe. Um, huh? PowerPoint, yeah. Uh, for the soul winning church, it's the altar call. Uh, then you've got petition. I like this one, the handheld mic. All right. Go around, everybody has a chance to share uh, something. I don't know. The potluck, okay? And then there is Ephesians 4. That intrigued me. I looked at it and I said, oh, isn't that something? Everybody else gets something like that. And this, the Transformation Church, gets a, a chapter of the Bible. Well, I'm rooting for that one right off the right up, up front, right? Um, what is the desired res- result of the classroom church? It's an educated Christian that you would think right thoughts about every doctrine, etc., uh, the soul winning church, they desire that people would be born again, saved from their sins, etc. Social conscience church, they uh, desire an activist. They're, they're looking for activists. That's what they're looking for. Um, the experiential church is the empowered Christian. Uh, the next one, the family church is a secure uh, Christian, a sense of security and belonging. The life development church, the desired re- result is a disciple, that you'd be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Source of legitimacy of the classroom church is expository preaching. Um, that's their source of legitimacy. Uh, the soul winning church finds its legitimacy in the numbers of people that they've won to Christ. And so they'll advertise the number of numbers, the amount of numbers. Uh, or the cause, social conscience church, it comes in the validity of the cause that they're trying to work on in society, whatever it might be. Um, experiential church, it's the spirit, an experience of the spirit. Family reunion church, they say, are roots. Life development church, changed lives. What is the positive trait? They all have some positive trait. Knowledge of the Bible, for example, in the classroom church. Heart for the lost is a positive trait. Compassion for oppressed or needy or poor, positive trait. Vitality, a sense of energy and vitality in life. Identity, uh, a sense of belonging again. And then growth. Now, having looked at all that, um, I'm not going to ask you to say out loud what you think this church is. Um, I, a lot of people have opinions and all that. I know this. Um, I believe that thinking right thoughts about the Bible is important, but I don't believe it's all important. I think having accurate doctrine is important, but if that's where it ends, you're actually worse off at the end than you were at the beginning. It it actually is better for you not to know doctrines than to know it and not put it into practice in your life. So what I've had to ask as a pastor is, is our church really changing lives? Are lives really changing? That's a complex question. Frankly, I can't necessarily see whether lives are changing. I can preach a sermon on Deuteronomy 6 and urge people to do certain things. And then I can seek out the information, try to find out if they're doing them or not. But I can't read people's hearts. I don't know. So the question I want to ask is, is everything we do, whether it's Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, small groups, worship services, all of the patterns and programs of the church, are they really producing a growth in spiritual maturity or not? That's what I have to ask. Are we really growing? Are we really being transformed? Are we really becoming more and more like Christ or not? 
It will not help any of you who are sitting in this room tonight to learn more facts about the Holy Spirit that do not in some way transform your life. The challenge for me is I can know that and not be able to do a thing about it. <laughs> I, I could, or I could say, I want to do something about it. What, what should I do? Well, we can break up in small groups and answer a bunch of questions. We can do that. We can do all kinds of things, but we're still in this room here. I believe, as I did, when I was teaching on what is spiritual maturity, that right doctrine primes the pump for everything else. If you think right thoughts about biblical verses, you have the possibility of growing genuinely in Christ. Without it, you don't. But what I'm saying is it's not enough. And many verses testify to this, don't they? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, for example. It's not enough just to know right things. Jesus said, you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Right? So you can't do them if you don't know them. But if you know them and don't do them, you will not be blessed. And I believe you can prove from Scripture you're actually worse because you knew them and didn't do them. So for me, I have to ask, okay, we can be ever growing and increasing in doctrines and all that, but if it's not proportionally making a transforming effect in our hearts, it's actually a bad thing. Now, that doesn't mean you all should fold up and go home. I'm not saying that. I'm not, what I'm saying is, friends, we're about to learn about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to carve off about 20 minutes at the end to talk about how your life could be transformed by the things we've shared so far. All right? Is that 20 minutes going to make all the difference? I don't know. I know this, that there's work that has to be done on the pastoral side and there's work that has to be done on the people side. We have to think about, are we teaching and preaching and ministering for effect so that people are actually being transformed? Are we praying to that end? Are we teaching in such an effective way that the truths that we're talking about are pressed into your heart so that you say, I must change, I must grow, I must be more like Christ, or not. And we have to look at that. What you have to do is say, what am I doing with the truths that I'm learning? You know, is my life being changed? Is my yearning for Christ, is my imitation of Christ growing because of the things I'm learning? All I'm doing is I'm urging you from James chapter 1 to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer as well. That's my desire. And I believe that a good pastoral ministry is going to be, if I could use this this sense, a hot ministry, an applying ministry, a ministry that to some degree where the word is kind of all over you and you feel like I can't ignore this. I need to do something about this. I, I I really yearn to grow as a result of this. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I don't want to be a classroom church. I don't. I'd like to be a church in which lives are being transformed. I really do. I desire to see people growing up in maturity. It would kill me to know that all that happens here on Wednesday night is that we are advancing along some curriculum of of systematic theology and really lives are not being changed. Having said all that, I don't really know how you measure something like that. How do you measure are your lives changed? Tom? That's such a good point, you know, ministry, that, that we would actually be, be serving. A couple of years ago, the pastoral staff came up with four diagnostic questions, and we still think they're valid questions to ask yourself all the time. There's a lot more than that we could ask, but we wanted to make it simple and straightforward. And what we wanted to ask is, are you growing in these areas? Not just, you know, can you check a box or is there something happening? But do you see a principle of growth? 
And they were, you know, number one, how are your personal daily quiet times? Your sense of personal connectedness to Christ. Your prayer, your uh, Bible intake, how is it? How is it going? Uh, Secondly, um, how about your family? You know, are there family devotions going on? Is there a sense of family discipleship? Um, I know that that question may not equally or simply apply to everyone, but still it was worth asking because God so clearly has set up families as vital to his kingdom. So uh, are you playing the role in the family that God has set up for you? Um, Thirdly, what about evangelism? Are you seeking to make an effort to reach out with the gospel? When was the last time you shared your faith? That kind of thing. Fourth, is there a pattern of ministry? As Thomas pointed out, is there a pattern of ministry in your life where you have a recognizable role in the church and in the kingdom of God? And are you doing it? And I just think these are valid questions to be asking. And, and my feeling is not only should you ask this, but, but are you growing? Are these things actually more pronounced? You're more like Christ in these areas than you were a year ago or five years ago. Is there a principle of growth? You get this out of Second Peter chapter 1. It says, for if these qualities are in you in increasing measure, there's a sense of growth. None of us are ever going to get to Matthew 5:48 in this world. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, that pulls all of us upward. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Always, there's something more to shoot, shoot at all the time. But all I'm saying is, friends, let's, let's put into practice what we learn. That doesn't mean let's not learn. I, I still stand by this statement. You cannot live what you don't know, what you haven't heard. Without the doctrine, nothing else. Everything stops. We've got to have that, but we've got to have more than that. That's all. Any other comments about this chart or this church or ways we can be more of a... Yeah, go ahead, Joyce. I think one thing that's missing in all of this is um, to equip because um, the church is too busy equipping us all the time. Because we are out there on an everyday basis with ministering and if we don't feel like we're comfortable doing those things and that's going to do it for the kids to make you feel like, yeah, I can I can be able to do this even after the, this level this year and I'm looking forward to it. That is so true. Um, and I, I think, you know, you get it out of Ephesians 2.10, for example. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But then Ephesians 4, which is on the chart, Ephesians 4 says that we are we, like ministers of the gospel are there to prepare God's people for works of service. I think the two are the same. I think they're the same works. Ephesians 2.10 works. The Ephesians 4 ministers help the people do your works. Nobody can do your works for you. I believe that with all my heart. Um, you know, there's somebody in this room, and I can embarrass him, but talk to him, and he's got a ministry of evangelism at the workplace. My desire is to help him do what he can do, to equip him for the opportunities. I want to do everything I can for that, to encourage, to teach, to pray, to everything I can to do that. But I also want to do what I can, that there's a whole church community of that kind of thing going on. So as Joyce said, you know, we're equipped to do all those good works that only we can do. Any other comments about this? Thoughts about it? I don't even know that you give it a name unless you say Christ Church or Living Church, but under Unifying Values, I would put evangelism, I would put teaching, ministry, I'd skip over a few emphasis and go to Ephesians 4, Empowered Christians, and positive faith knowledge of the Bible, 
apart for the law. And a lot of the other things are kind of just... So you're putting together the perfect church from the chart. So looking at which box you got... What was that? Cafeteria. Cafeteria style. We'll just walk by and take some of this. I, oh, I like that. I, you know, I do that too. Actually, I'm attracted to probably, you know, many of the boxes in there. You know, I, I am. You know, for example, the bottom, it's not enough to just say the key emphasis is to be. Well, to be what? My guess is probably a lot of the stuff above. Right? We'd like them to be involved in evangelism. We'd like them to have compassion on the poor and needy. You can prove that one from scripture. You, we'd like them to know right doctrines, right? So my feeling is to be kind of includes all of the stuff above. It's not that simple. My goodness, it's not that simple. But, uh, you know, I, I just think that there there is a danger. Every church, you could say it this way, has its overwhelming tendencies and therefore its comp- corresponding dangers. And to me, the danger in this church is ever, ever learning, always learning, but is there a corresponding life transformation? That's That's my question, you know. And... For me, it's, all, it's, it's a little bit like, like the artist who's not really very good, who sees a beautiful scene, sets up the easel, and gets an image in, in his or her mind, and then paints, and the painting's not quite what, you know, it just doesn't look. And they want to keep growing at, you know, I think that we can see that Christian life in our minds. We can imagine it. But then what actually comes out is far less than what, you know, and that's the way it's going to be while we're here. But we still need to ask the question, are we growing? Are we more like Christ? Is there a principle of growth in our lives? These are biblical questions to ask. So I'm eager to teach about the Holy Spirit tonight. I really am. I I love the the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and I still believe there is an essential, important value to teaching right doctrine. I do believe that it primes the pump for everything, but I also believe there's a great danger that it could just stop there. All right, so having said that, uh, I'd like to get into the study tonight. Let's look some at the doctrine of the, of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And then, like I said, toward the end, I'd like to stop and uh, just start to ask some questions about how this would apply to our lives. Okay? Hmm. Well, that is that is that's true, and that's our desire. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right in our vision statement. You know, we exist to delight and display and declare the glory of God, equipping God's people to do the same throughout the world through Jesus Christ. So, that's a good word. That's a good word. Keep thinking about this, and if you have any feedback afterwards, come and talk to me. Or a couple of weeks from now, um, I'm thinking about it. All right, let's uh, let's do a quick review on what we've already learned about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Grudem gives us a definition of the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. We talked about the doctrine of the personality of the, of the Holy Spirit, okay, uh, that He is a person. He's not an impersonal force. He is a person. We went through all that last time. Uh, we began to discuss the deity of the Spirit. This is not in Grudem, but... Um, uh, the deity of the Spirit proved by His names. For example, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, um, it, it says, and this is what some of you were, we'll get back to this perhaps later on. It says, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Well, I mean, that, that really kind of nails the, the deity of the Holy Spirit right there. He's called the Spirit of our God. He must be God, right? Um, also, uh, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons... Uh, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. 
Well, only if the Spirit is God can he be calling out Abba, Father, from within our hearts. It's the Spirit of God within us. Also, he's called the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17. He is God. It's also proved by his characteristics. This is, a, this is an incredible thing. If you stop and think about it, let me read this next verse, talking about the omniscience of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In a couple of weeks, when I get back to Romans, uh, I'm going to begin by preaching the very end of Romans 11, the doxology. And there it says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And then it asks this question, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, look at the verse we just read, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. What is the answer to Paul's question? Who has known the mind of the Lord? The Holy Spirit does. The Spirit knows his own mind. The Spirit knows the mind of the Father. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. That's an incredible thought. That points immediately then to the omniscience of the Spirit. He knows everything God thinks about. No human being could ever do that. It is infinitely beyond our capacity, but it is not beyond the capacity of the Spirit of God. He searches out the mind of the Father. Isn't that an incredible thought? That when you combine those two, it really is quite powerful. Because there in Romans 11, there's a sense that the answer is no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? You get the sense, no one. But then when you bring in here, it's uh, the answer is the Spirit of God knows the mind of the Father. He completely knows it. The omniscience. Also, omnipresence. Uh, first, uh, sorry, uh, Psalm 139, 7 through 10. There it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make uh, my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. That is one of the great, great verses on the omnipresence of God. But notice what it says. Where can I flee from your spirit? So the spirit then is omnipresent. Wherever you go, the Holy Spirit is there. He's omnipresent. Uh, Also, the spirit is omnipotent. Skip the Judges uh, passage. We'll probably get to it later on. Uh, tonight. But look at Luke 1, 35 through 37. Uh, there um, it says, the angel answered, speaking to Mary, you remember this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then look at verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Now, wouldn't you say the, the statement, nothing is impossible with God, is a statement of God's omnipotence? He can do all things. But it's linked directly here to the work of the Spirit. And therefore, the Spirit can do all things. The Spirit is omnipotent. He can do this. He can actually produce a baby inside Mary without the help of a human father. He can do this. Nothing's impossible with God. And they're directly uh, related to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He is also truth. You know, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. But uh, Jesus himself says he is called the spirit of truth. In other words, truth is completely identified with the spirit. All he ever does is speak the truth. He can do nothing else. It is his nature to speak the truth. Uh, also, holiness. Uh, there in Romans 1.4, it says, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, the holiness of the spirit. 
uh, life. We'll get get to some of these later on this evening, I think. But it says, um, in Christ Jesus or through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So there's a connection of, uh, between life and the spirit. We're going to develop that more in a minute. All of this is just proving um, the deity of the spirit. Also, wisdom. Uh, look at uh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Uh, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then the other two verses just support what I just shared. Uh, basically, Isaiah 40 is is just uh, the predecessor to the um, the uh, incredible statement in the doxology that we were talking about in Romans 11. This is Isaiah's version. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Paul's quoting Isaiah 40 there. And so this is Isaiah's version of it. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Now there clearly the answer would have to be no one. We don't have the idea of the father needing to be taught, but we do know that the spirit knows the mind of God. He is wise. And so we already covered 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. All right, so the spirit is deity. He is God as proved by his characteristics, as proved by his nature. Uh, now he's also God or deity as proved by his works. For example, we talk about creating. It's a really striking thing, isn't it? I remember it was it was a good good piece into my my Christian life before I realized how early the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Bible. I mean, he's right there in Genesis one two. You'd never imagine it. You think, well, you know, we'd actually kind of be introduced to Jesus before we'd be introduced to the Spirit. But there it says in. Uh, uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Isn't that an incredible statement? You know, just let me just take this and apply it to you. I just think it's, it's awesome to think that the same spirit who is hovering over the primordial waters, however you understand the, the beginning, the creation, the same spirit unchanged, undiminished in power or wisdom is hovering over your life and is actually in you, empowering you for transformation. It's an incredible thought. It brings goosebumps, really, to think of that kind of power at work in you, the spirit of God hovering over the earth, over the waters. And now here he is at work in your life. What an incredible thought. Um, so creating, he's right there involved in creation. Uh, he's proved, it's proved, uh, the deity of the spirit is proved also by his work in inspiration. Uh, in second Peter one, 20 and 21, it says above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. So the Holy spirit had a major role in inspiration. Uh, he was the one that inspired the prophets to speak and said, thus says the Lord. And then the writing prophets, not all prophets were writing prophets. I don't know that Elijah ever wrote anything, but many of the prophets were writing prophets. And uh, when the, they were moved to write, it was by the Spirit. And they were guarded miraculously from error. That's how we get the Bible. Uh, and it's on the basis of that perfect transmission of spiritual information that we can make absolute certain statements about God and what he's like. But it was the spirit that, that saw over that entire process. So we get in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 
Now, you may wonder, what does that have to do with the Spirit? The Spirit isn't actually mentioned there. Well, that's true. But over and over, both in, in Hebrew and in Greek and, frankly, even in um, English, there seems to be a connection between wind or breath and the Spirit of God. For example, sometimes in the uh, Old Testament, the translators have a hard time knowing whether they should translate a, a verse, wind or spirit. A very good example of this happens in the Valley of the Dry Bones. And there, there is such a mixing. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's in Ezekiel. Let's look at that chapter. What, what chapter is that? Ezekiel 37, I think, maybe. Is that right? Ezekiel 37? Okay, look at Ezekiel 37. I'll show you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> the translator is really has a, really has a hard time, uh, even one who, who deeply desires to be faithful to the word and all, all that, to know through this whole encounter whether to translate something spirit or wind. It's really hard to know. And, and actually, sometimes even then, there's a, there's a difficulty uh, between breath, wind, and lowercase s, spirit, the spirit of those that are coming alive. The whole thing is very tough because it's the same word over and over, all over the place, ruach, which is one of those onomatopoeic words that sounds like wind, ruach. You know, there's a sense of the breathing and the breath of God. But uh, look at uh, Ezekiel 37. And um, yeah, you, you know the story basically comes to a... I'll, I'll just read it and instead of summarizing, just read it beginning in verse 1. The hand of the Lord is upon me and he, brought, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley uh, full of dry bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. That's a good answer. I like that one. I mean, that's a good answer. Give glory to God. I have no idea whether they can live or not. But you do. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath. See that word breath? I'll make breath enter you and you will come to life. That's the Hebrew word ruach. I'm going to make ruach enter into you. Breath will enter into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and I, as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Ruach, there was no breath. They weren't alive yet. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. That's what the NIV did with it. Your translation may be different. It could be prophesy to the wind. Boy, the translator has a hard job in this passage because it's the same word all the way through. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, Ruach. Come from the four winds, O breath, Ruach, and breathe into these slain that they may live. Now, the only reason it says winds there is because it's a well-known expression, the four winds in the Old Testament. So he's going to go with winds there, but it's just the same word. Prophesy to the wind or breath and say, come from the winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered into them and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. So we'll just stop there. All I'm saying is this is very much intentional. You get the same thing with um, in, the, in the New Testament, uh, pneuma, 
uh, means spirit, lowercase, uppercase. It means breath. It's all related, like we get pneumatics or, or um, pneumonia. It's all related to the breathing. Even in the English word, you get spirit, S-P-I-R, and you get inspiration. Uh, the S-P-I-R has to do with breathing. It just does. There's an int- intimate connection. And by the way, that Ezekiel 37 passage is an incredible picture of regeneration as well. It's by the Holy Spirit that we live. It's by the Holy Spirit that we've come to life. We'll talk more about that uh, in a bit. But the Spirit is proved uh, by His inspiring. All Scripture is God-breathed. You see what I'm saying? It's God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. It's by the Spirit He breathes into the prophet. Powerful. All right, uh, by begetting Christ, we've already talked about. Only, only God could do that, and it's the Spirit that did it. Convicting people of sin, as we'll talk more about it uh, later on. But in John 16, it says, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Convicting people of sin. That's what the Spirit does. And regenerating. Um, We're not going to read this now. I'm going to talk uh, more about it later. But that's the born again passage where he talks about being born again. And comforting. uh, He says, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another counselor that he may abide with you forever. Turn the page. Um, Interceding. And I love this. This It's such a beautiful thing. (coughs) Excuse me. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Anybody say amen to that? Is that true? Do you know what you ought to pray for? I usually don't, actually. You know, I really don't. Uh, it's funny. We, we get, um, we get uh, prayer cards and we received a card uh, concerning a basketball team that it would win. And so um, I said, somebody was praying and, and uh, one of the ministers, and they'd already changed it, that the Lord's will would be done and that people would learn. I said, now pray what's written on the card. They expect. So the person, the minister prayed that the team would win if it was God's will. All right. So <laughs> at any rate, this is what we try to be faithful with the cards you send them. We try to pray just as they are written and we let the Lord decide what he will do. Um, but the fact of the matter is, for the most part, we really don't know what to pray for. Why don't we know what to pray for? What should we be praying for? Jerry, what should, what should we be praying for? Okay. All right. What, what prayer will the Lord always answer affirmatively? Prayers that are prayed how? According to his will. So therefore, what's our problem? When, when it says we don't, we don't know his will. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know what his will is. We don't know it at a micro scale. And to some degree, we don't even know it at a macro scale. We know generally his will is that he be glorified and that the kingdom of Christ advance. And that's what he's doing. And we can pray accordingly. And we have been educated. It's not like we're ignorant. We have been trained. And so our prayers are much more according to the will of God than they were before we were Christians. But at a, a smaller scale, we really don't know what his will is in every detailed case. And, and some of that is that he hasn't told us. He hasn't told us what his will is, uh, let's say, in a healing case, somebody that, that they might live or die. And God's, we don't know what God's will is in those things. We don't know in so many cases. But here it just openly testifies. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Now, what do you think is the significance of that word himself? The Spirit himself intercedes for us. I was talking to... Uh, Jenny about this we were driving in the other day and we we're talking remember this we we're talking about how the Holy Spirit 
prays for us. And I, I, the analogy I use when I was talking to Jenny is, what would you think if I told you that the president himself called me on the phone yesterday? She said, I would say you were joking, all right? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, but you can tell when I'm joking when I'm not. And if, you, if I couched it in such terms and whatever, you could tell that I was totally serious. Um, then what is the significance of the word himself in that sentence? The president himself called me on the phone yesterday. What is the significance of that? As opposed to what? Somebody in his name or on, you know, please call so-and-so, one of his. Yeah, go ahead, Jerry. Where is he? They're both interceding, and that's a very good point, Jared. I, I love that because we know from Hebrews that Christ ever lives to intercede for God's people. So Jesus is there at the right hand of God praying for us. But this verse is teaching us something else. The Spirit himself is interceding. But I don't think we should lose that sense of awe or amazement. You'd be amazed if I said that the president himself ate dinner with us yesterday. You'd be amazed. Come on, admit it. You'd be amazed. And you'd think I was joking or lying or it didn't happen, etc. But the fact is we use the word himself to underscore the, the magnificence of the person. And I think that's what the word himself here is. I mean, he could, let me put it this way, could the Holy Spirit delegate intercessory prayer to a created being? Could he assign an angel to pray for you? Absolutely he could. But the Spirit himself is praying for you. That's incredible. That is so comforting. And to know not only that, that the, but that the Son of God is at the right hand of God and is interceding constantly for you. And realize the infinitude of their intellect and mental capacity that they can both pray for you and me and all our brothers and sisters in Christ at the same time at a detailed level. That's incredible, but it's going on. And so the Spirit himself is praying. And the implication is he does know what to pray for for you. He does. He, he knows the will of God because he has searched the mind of God. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so much of the, the language is father-centered. It's amazing. I don't want to you know, say definitely we can't pray to the Spirit. or we, you know, I don't think that's true. But do you see how much is focused on God the Father? Remember how Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's his goal. He wants to bring you to the Father. And so Jesus is father-centered, father-focused. What, any more thoughts on that? Okay. I think so, but he hasn't shorn himself. That's all I'm saying. And, and I think we do pray for others, and we are commanded in other places to pray in the Spirit. So frankly, to some degree, we're just taking a tiny little bit of the Spirit's prayer burden at that moment. And frankly, even for the individual you're praying for, you're praying less for that individual than the Spirit is. He's got a far broader plan than Annie. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, there is a distinctiveness, but we wouldn't think that they're doing separate works or praying for different things. You know, there's such, I mean, we cannot even comprehend the unity of the Trinity. So there's no, no disagreement whatever. And I'm not saying you're hinting that there were, but there's a, such a harmony between the second person of the Trinity and the third person as they pray to the first person of the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah, and the word also could either be taken, he not only died, but he's also interceding, but it could easily go back to this verse, verse 26 and 27. The Spirit is interceding and the Son is also interceding. Both of them are true. And so it's a beautiful thing. We are totally covered in prayer. Isn't that wonderful? And even if the brothers and sisters forget to pray for you, and we shouldn't because it's a sin, and Samuel said, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. We should pray for each other, hold each other up. But never imagine, it bothers me when we get way too man-centered and stressed out about prayer in this one sense. If I don't pray for this, it will not happen. Friends, let's not over-glorify our prayer ministry over that of the Spirit or the Son. The Spirit and the Son have everything totally covered. However, I do believe there are certain blessings that the Lord withholds from His people until they ask. I just believe that. I just think that the Lord withholds certain blessings. But when he means to give them, what does he do? He mobilizes people to pray for them very powerfully. And the ones that are the faithful, powerful prayer warriors, do you think they're saying, I took it upon myself and had my own idea to come pray? They're all going to say, the Spirit led me to pray. The Spirit moved me to pray. We are praying in the Spirit. So it's the Spirit who wants to give the blessing to his people, and he does that by raising up people to pray for it. Right, let's keep going. This is a beautiful thing. The Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This is an incredible verse. This is going the other way. It seems here it's talking about the Father. He who searches our hearts is the Father. And so the Father searches your mind. You know, you can't know the Father's thoughts, but the Father knows your thoughts. He searches your mind. He knows completely uh, what you're praying for, what your mind is. He also knows the mind of the Spirit. So the Father is searching the Spirit's mind. The Spirit's searching out the deep things of God. There's just all this searching going on. There's all this relationship going on. It's just a beautiful thing. That's what's happening. The Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. What does that mean? What does that mean if we learned in another place that if we pray according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. First John, right? Well, what is this verse then? If you take that concept and bring it here, what do you learn about the Spirit's intercessory ministry? Just as we said about the Son. The Son gets everything He asks for and the Spirit gets everything He asks for for the same reason they pray in accordance with the Father's will. It's a beautiful thing. Powerful thing. All right, the Spirit also does work of sanctifying. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we also ought to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He does the work of sanctification. And there's two senses of that. We'll talk about it later. I don't know if it's tonight, but the Spirit sets you apart unto God as God's own private possession, sanctified. He does that right at the moment you're saved. You are immediately, instantaneously sanctified in the sense that you have been set apart unto God as his private personal possession. You are his, his own. All right, but then the Spirit does an ongoing work of purification for the rest of your life. The Spirit does that kind of sanctification too. The Spirit does it all. All right, and then 
the deity of the Spirit is proved finally by his being equally associated with the other persons of the Trinity. We already studied this last time, but this is in the story about Ananias and Sapphira, how they lied about the amount of money they got for the piece of property. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept back part of your money, part of the money you received from the land? And then he says at the end, you have not lied to men, but to God. That is a very clear statement of the deity of the Spirit. Do you see it? Uh, definitely Peter linked the two. And then again, in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I would say that that formula, that baptismal formula, and also uh, another Trinitarian formula in, uh, well, yeah, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Those have really helped they helped the early church shape the difficult doctrine of the Trinity because there you see Father, Son, Spirit side by side. Notice also in the Great Commission the significance of the singular word name. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know that this is important because it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is one name, one name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, but there is one God. There's a sense of the deity there. All right, any questions about the deity of the Spirit? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, go ahead, please. Well, anything you want to say. That's fine. I had two thoughts. One was when we're talking about omnipresence. Is that something we ascribe to the Holy Spirit, particularly in Psalm 139? Do we ascribe that, or we do ascribe that also to Jesus in some sense? In some very mysterious sense. Okay. I really, it's beyond my ability, beyond my brain to explain how Jesus can be human right now in a resurrection body and omnipresent in any way separate from the Holy Spirit, or maybe he isn't separate from the, I don't know. All I know is Jesus did say in the Great Commission, and surely I will be with you, plural, always, even to the end of the age. I just figure he can do that, and I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know. Any other questions? The other thing was um, in the, uh, Christ's baptism, when the Spirit manifests in a visible form, mm-hmm. does that imply then that the Spirit has form in the same way that somehow Christ has form and the Father has I don't know what form means there. You could see it. You mean the dove? Well, if it was a dove or in the form of a dove, but it was something that the observer saw, or at least the author saw, and it, they saw it move and it rested. There's some physical or light or some manifestation of the spirit. Yeah, I just look on that as as him lowering himself to our weakness to explain that he's here. You know, um, I, I just think there's a symbolic and physical representation there. But he is spirit, and, and there's just no corporeal or atomic essence there. There's, he doesn't need atoms. He's spirit. And, and I, don't, I don't understand that any more than you do. What is a soul? What's it made of? What is the fabric of a soul? I mean, you know, what's, it, what's the stuff of a soul? I don't know what it is. Huh? Numinos. Oh, okay. All right. Before we go too far along that line, I think we had to cut it off right there. I have an instinct we might get in trouble. Um, but I don't know what it, what the, there is no stuff. I don't know. And, and I just think it's just a whole other level of being, the spirit. But he did descend as a dove on Christ and remain on him. And there's the tongues of fire. I think more than anything, the spirit manifests himself by a sense of the presence of God in a place. You just know God is here. And, and the spirit is the one who does that. 
Now let's stop our study right now and let's talk about how this could be personally applied to our lives. Look on page 11, and I have some application questions. We can't ask them all because we didn't get as far in our study as I'd like, but that's all right. Really, I'd rather have you learn and apply in a life-transformational way one thing than ten things that you don't apply to your life. Let me stop and ask this question. I'd like you to answer. If any, if some of you feel more comfortable answering in front of a huge crowd and confessing all your deep, dark sins in front of I'm not saying that. But uh, just if you feel comfortable answering, please do. But uh, how would thinking of the Holy Spirit as a person, and, and I don't want you to say we're thinking of the Spirit as though he's not a person. He is a person. The Spirit has, revealed, has been revealed as a person. But how would understanding that, really believing it, embracing it, help you in your battle against sin? Yeah, Landis. So that's a, that's a powerful verse. Do not grieve the spirit. You know, I, I think, you know, you know how it says in Scripture, we're not under law, but under grace. If you understand that properly, is an f- infinitely greater motivation to holiness than being under the law is. Which is, which is uh, more painful? To face a law that you broke and look at the law or to face a person that you hurt and to see the look on the face and to deal with the relational pain of that, to me, the second is far more painful and difficult than, than words engraved in a, you know, on, a, on tablets of stone. And it's the Spirit's job, I think, in our lives to make sin become very personal. You know, that I have affronted a person who loves me, who's done all these good things for me. Yeah, one more thing, Landis, go ahead. I think so. Any other thoughts on this? How meditating that the Spirit is a person, He has feelings, He has a will for you, He has a plan for your life, and He is living within you. He's in you. How would that help you in your battle against sin? Yes. That is wonderful. A sense of an advocate at the right hand of God. The Spirit's praying for you. The Spirit himself is praying for you. Yeah, go ahead. When you do sin, you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And feeling that conviction sort of gives you strength, too, to not sin. It's the conviction there, I think, that really hurts. And it also lets you know that um, uh, you're one of God's own. If you're being convicted and, you want, and you're motivated to walk uh, in the right path, then you know you have been chosen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but if your conscience becomes seared to the point where you don't care mm-hmm. uh, about uh, that conscience or the spirit, I call it conviction, then uh, you're hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me, th- let me think with you a little bit more about the person of the Spirit. One, thing, one of the ways I experience that is that the Spirit is unpredictable for me. He's not a machine so that if I do this sin, I'll get this consequence. I actually don't know what he's going to do. 
you know, if I act in a certain way, he may be very gracious. He may surprise me. I'll tell you one time, I'll never forget this. I was on the mission field and I, I was just behaving badly. Um, I was grumbling. I was complaining. I was irritable about eating six or seven large meals a day as the people were lavishing grace on us. And they really were. They were being. But I, I was like I was not used to eating that much food. And it was just an amazing time. And it was the people were just so friendly and so loving. But I was out of friendliness and love. All right. I was just out of it. And so this uh, partner who was really at this point uh, my partner in crime because he was complaining too. Um, the two of us were just leading each other down the spiral path of, of unsanctification. And I came back and I was brought up short on how I'd behave that afternoon and evening. And it was the spirit that was doing that. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know. And at that moment, I really expected, you know, to get whapped. And because I deserved it. I just had behaved badly. And I found myself surprised by grace. I'll never forget that. It was a prayer time. I was having a quiet time. And I thought, wow, I never know what the spirit's going to do. Other times, you can be surprised by a stern discipline. You know, an illness, a, a certain loss, something happens, an injury, a, a, some, something can happen. And you think, well, I didn't think it was that big a deal. Well, that's precisely the point, you know. But he's not a machine. You know, drop a few quarters and you get the, the, can, the Coke can out. It's not that. He's unpredictable. Other thoughts about how the personality, the fact that he, the spirit is person would affect your life. Tom. That's powerful. It's powerful. Yeah, go ahead, James. You mentioned about feeling the presence of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is definitely something that I've experienced, but it's not a continual, I always feel that same presence as in the same mm-hmm. way as perhaps when I'm studying the Word or mm-hmm. when I'm in prayer or in worship. Mm-hmm. Um, is that like a, a goal that we should have to like be in that experiencing it, feeling it, or whatever you want to call it, all the time? Or is that, yeah, would you, I think it's a goal. I don't. I think that this. I think we should seek it. Um, a very clear example of this is in uh, Luke chapter eleven and verse thirteen. And there in Luke uh, it says, uh, you know, the the passage has to do with prayer. And he says, "Which of you fathers, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake?" This that's actually Matthew. Um, I, I haven't memorized Luke, but um, what's so interesting is the slight difference between Matthew and Luke. Matthew says, "If you then, though you are evil," know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Okay? But in Luke 11, it says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's uh, Luke 11:13. So what, what does it mean? I thought I already have the Holy Spirit. Well, without getting into redemptive historical issues of whether the Spirit had come yet in the Pentecost, let's just accept it as a word for us today that He is our Father and yet we can ask Him for the Spirit. I think there's a parallel to that in the book of Acts when they were asking and being filled with the Spirit or in another place in Ephesians it says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I think we should be continually seeking a greater experience and a sense of the presence of the Spirit in our lives. I don't, like like um, C.S. Lewis said in that in that quote that that was at the beginning of desiring god piper's you know uh, statement he said god finds us our desires too weak not too strong 
We're half-hearted creatures. We don't love God very much. So let's think about this question. Should we be seeking more of an experience of the Spirit than we are? What do you think? I think absolutely yes. Does that mean it's going to manifest itself in the ways that certain denominations? I don't know. I, I'm not going to comment on that, the sign gifts, speak in tongues and all that. I'm not going to get into that. But what I will say is this. All of us should be seeking more of an experience of the immediate presence and person of God than we are. What, what would happen in your life if you did that? If you began seeking God, that you would today experience more of the spirit, more of his presence, your person. How would that affect your life? If you're not, you'd feel a sense of maybe even loneliness that he's not there. Ian? Well, that is so true. I, I think we should realize... You know, like George Mueller said, his first and greatest duty every day was to find out how he could get himself happy in Jesus. And you could say, well, that's kind of selfish, isn't it? Well, actually, I think it's arrogant to go the other way. What do you really have to offer apart from that? Do you have anything to offer anybody if you're not happy in Jesus today? And my feeling is I think we need to be filled with the Spirit, overflowing, it says in some places, filled with joy. It does say rejoice in the Lord always. And if we're not exhibiting that joy, I think that joy... I really believe that joy in the Lord is a barometer of how things are going spiritually for you. Don't you remember how in Galatians he used it as a barometer to say that your doctrine is off? He said, what has happened to all your joy? You might want to ask yourself that question. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. If there's no joy in your life, could it be? I don't even have to say could it be. Something is wrong. It's like pain to the body. Something's wrong. There's something wrong because the pain is coming. It tells you, stop doing what you're doing. I think a lack of joy in the Christian life shows something's wrong. Yeah. Yes, very, very true, yes. Oh, boy. Well, I feel led by the Spirit right now to say something about our corporate worship, if I might. Is that all right? We were talking today about this. And um, you said, I don't know. It depends on what you're about to say. All right, hang on a second. I'm going to press no, I, Okay. I know you'll agree with what I'm about to say. Okay. Here's the thing, guys. Our vision statement says we exist to delight in, display, and declare the glory of God. We do that in part in our corporate worship. We were talking about um, people like Eric and I who have a role to stand up in front of the church. It is our responsibility to be filled with the joy of the Spirit and to show it. <coughs> and I would extend that to anyone that is singing a solo or is singing in the choir uh, or is playing a musical instrument. There needs to be a display of the joy and a delight in the glory of God. But it is not enough, friends, to stop there. It's got to be true of you all as well. Our corporate worship experience will greatly be enhanced, exponentially enhanced, if we follow George Mueller's advice on Sunday morning and get ourselves happy in Jesus before we come to church. And it could be 
that you need to believe what I preached a week ago, not this past week, but the week before, that you need to go to Psalm 32 and say, Lord, cover my sin. I have not been walking well with you. I need to confess sin, and I've been away from you. Will you please? He will cover it. He is glad to cover it if you'll just be honest. But do whatever it takes so that when you get done, you are happy in Jesus and come to church that way. And I'll do the same, okay? Deal? All right? And Eric will too. And so will the choir. And so the, you know, the organist and the pianist, and we will do that together, or we really won't worship, friends. We really won't. It's going to be a cold, bereft experience. And that, my friends, is infinitely more important than which songs Eric picks, what the style of worship is, blended, contemporary, all that. I can't tell you how much more important this thing is than that for our corporate worship experience. Any other thoughts on that? Jared. But also, I think, too, when we focus on the things of feeling close to Him, being close to God, but also, I think there's a, a more sobering side. I think if we're close <coughs> to the Spirit, we'll see more pain mm-hmm. in our lives as well. Because you keep going. It says, if children, then heirs. And if heirs, if we suffer so that we may be glorified. So don't expect if we get close to the Spirit, can everything be okay and our lives go on without any pain. I think mm-hmm. more pain comes because the closer we're with the Spirit, the more effective we are, and the more Satan hates us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's a very very the closer we are, the more effective we are. Can I can I ask one thing of you? Can I mean we represent right now sitting here in this room about one eighth of the Sunday morning worship group. We get about four hundred people. Okay, we represent about one eighth of that. Suppose each one of us labored in our souls to have ourselves more ready for corporate worship than we ever have before so that we come in to the sanctuary filled with the Spirit in a way we never have before. Do you think that's going to make a difference in our corporate worship experience? Will there not be a leavening effect? I think there will. Are you willing to do it, Fred? I have a key question for you. You play the trumpet, right? Can you play while smiling? Is that possible? Are you able to do that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll work on that. At, at any rate, um, you know, I tell you what, it's going to show. Uh, I'm going to pray for you. You all pray for me, okay? And um, pray for Eric. Uh, that we would have an open display of delight and the glory of God. Friends, God is giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We will next Sunday be one week closer to that than we were the week before. We're coming into our inheritance. We're getting closer, friends. And there'll be a day when all of the things that hinder us will drop aside. They'll just fall away. And we're going to fly. We're going to be like you wouldn't believe. And I feel that that should inform how we actually feel on Sunday mornings. I feel like we should come in expecting to have a sense of that and be invigorated by that. Apart from that, our worship is sterile and dead. But it's not going to be that way. Not this Sunday. So let's pray that the Lord will work in each of our hearts. Get up a little bit earlier than you usually do on Sunday morning. Get yourself ready. Maybe read Deuteronomy 6 that I'm going to be pre- uh, preaching from. Get your, get your heart ready to meet the Lord, okay? Landis, can I ask you to close in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. 
Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.